Wonderful. Thank you, Pastor Andrew. Thank you, worship team, for leading us this morning. I trust that you're having a great Sunday so far. I'm so glad to see you all here in person and online. It's just a delight to have you with us. And as Pastor Andrew said, we are making our way through this series. This is week three of eight and trustworthy saying two of five. And so we're jumping into these sayings that uh, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he spoke these words to his protege, the young pastor named Timothy. And this is meaningful for us today. There's something for us to learn. And so I wanna encourage you to press into the text and join with me as we study it. Allow God's word to come alive for you. Our scripture this morning comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. I'm gonna invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. I know you just sat down like just a few minutes ago and you were just getting some relief there. But I promise we'll read the scripture together and then you can be seated afterwards. We're gonna read this together in one voice. The scripture will be on the screen. So with your mask on, I encourage you to come and read with me. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. In the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine and not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested and then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word that you gave through the Apostle Paul to your servant Timothy. Father, your church is beautiful. And we declare that today you are the head of this church. We are your body. We choose to align ourselves to your leadership in our lives. Father, you've also put in leadership pastors, elders, and deacons. You've called them apart from the many and you've selected them for special service. And I pray that we would submit to their authority in our lives because it's for our good. That we would respect them and honor them and pray for them. Father, we pray that we would be a church that is healthy and strong because we have a good infrastructure of leadership because healthy leaders lead healthy churches. May there be health all over WPA, everywhere we turn to whoever we may look at. May we see the evidence of healthiness because we're united in faith. We're bonded for life because we love you, Lord, and you are first in our lives. 
And so, Lord, today, let even the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, may it be acceptable to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. Let it be a sweet sound today, the obedience of your people in your ears. And so we say amen to your word. We believe it is true. Its promises are yes and amen. And we build our life upon these principles, these trustworthy sayings. We ask for your blessing this morning. In Jesus' name, everyone said amen. You may be seated. Around North American churches, you will often hear Christians say this very popular phrase, God equips those whom he has called. It's not a direct quote from scripture, but it's something that we have seen proven within scripture time and time again. And while this is certainly true in many ways, when I read this particular passage, I also think the opposite is true, that God calls those whom he has equipped. See, this, this is certainly the case when it comes to the selection of deacons and elders. The Apostle Paul, he outlines specific qualifications that make a person eligible for spiritual leadership in a congregation. They are not selected because of their popularity, how many people like them. They're not selected based on the platform, their agenda. This is not politics like it is in the world. They are selected because they pass several tests. Now, if we read 1 Timothy chapter 3 with the background of 1 Timothy chapter 2, like we should, that's the text that precedes the text we're reading today, as good students of God's word, we know that the Apostle Paul said some very controversial things about these roles as it pertains to gender. Let me give you an example. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15. The Apostle Paul explicitly said, a woman, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness and propriety. Let me be honest today. There is an elephant in the room. And I want to poke at that elephant in the room. And I want to say that this is inspired scripture. This is inspired scripture. I am not going to try make you doubt that this is in the word of God. That this is authentic. That this is real Holy Spirit inspired. It is. But I want to make some distinctions before I begin a short defense of female leadership in the church. See, the Apostle Paul is suggesting to us today that women must not be permitted to lead or teach men in particular because of the Genesis account of the fall. He goes all the way to the very beginning. And I agree wholeheartedly that as we read Genesis 1 and 2, we learn that Eve was the, one, the first one to sin and she led Adam to sin in Genesis 3. But at the end of the day, guess what? Both Adam and Eve sinned. Therefore, Paul has traditionally viewed women from this creation angle as the weaker vessel because they were the first one to fall into sin, just how the story unfolded. And this is a very Jewish perspective on women. Okay, so let's just establish that first. Secondly, for some reason, the Apostle Paul makes an interesting, very interesting distinction between deacons and elders who are also known as overseers. He makes an exemption for male and female deacons, 
But then he makes a restriction when it comes to female elders. In Acts 6, verses 5 to 6, the first seven deacons in the Bible are selected by the church. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, also Prochorus, also Nicanor, also Timon, and Permenaeus, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. And they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. This differs from what we find as the first of many personal greetings from the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome. In Romans 16 verses 1 to 2, where it says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Sencreae. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you, for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. Now, that might not be convincing enough for you. You may still want to argue that, yes, deacons can be men and women, but only elders can be men. But I, again, choose to disagree. I'll tell you why. Deacons were called for a specific purpose to alleviate the apostles of the practical responsibilities of the early church so that they could devote their time then to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The problem is, and here it is, observe carefully, that deacons did what they were set apart to do and also did what the apostles were supposed to do. You see, in the Bible, deacons preached. They weren't supposed to preach, but they preached. Take a look at Stephen and how this deacon did not only wait on tables, take care of widows, but he preached the most powerful sermon in front of the Sanhedrin in Acts 7, 260. And it was so compelling to the point that they were so angry at him, they stoned him on that day. Take a look at Philip and how this deacon did not only wait on tables and look after, deacon, uh, look after widows, but he evangelized the peoples of Samaria in Acts chapter, Acts chapter 8, verses 48, and he taught and he baptized the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8, 26 to 40. If two of seven deacons, Stephen and Philip, the ones we know a lot about, preached, then it is not beyond a deaconess like Phoebe to preach just the same, a female. Alternatively, Jesus never saw women the same way Paul did. In fact, Jesus, what did he do? He elevated women from their low cultural status. That's what I love about Jesus. I've told you before that women were the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They were entrusted with the greatest news ever told. And the same Holy Spirit later was distributed equally upon men and women, no respecter of gender. See, women preached the gospel to men on that day, but they did not immediately believe. They had to go see for themselves. Friends, how can God be a respecter of gender in some things but then not in other things. Therefore, I conclude today that men and women can serve as pastors, as deacons and deaconesses, as elders and elderesses. And I say that with a clear conscience today. 
I say that fully expecting to stand before God one day to give an account for the way that I've taught you, the people of God, and I will receive either his commendation in my life or his correction in my life. And I'm open to it. But I'm telling you, based on my reading of scripture, this is what I see. As Pentecostal believers, this is what we believe. Any Pentecostals in the house today? All right. Not many. We must have a lot of Baptists here today. It's okay. You're Pentecostal. You can be proud about it. Well, here's the reality. If this is a major contention for you, you need to really consider if this is to be your home church because we have female pastors on staff. We have, we're open to having elders on our elder council. We have deaconesses already functioning in uh, our board. And this is good and this is pleasing to the Lord. This is not heretical. This is a Pentecostal interpretation of scripture. Other traditions might do otherwise. I respect that. I'm not gonna fight with them on that. I understand why they believe what they believe, but we believe this to be true. This morning, I want to reveal three types of tests that must be conducted faithfully in the appointment of deacons and elders alike based on criteria, based on not just feelings, but based on the criteria found in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 13. And the first point this morning is this. If you're taking notes, I encourage you to write this down. A test of doctrine. First, we find a test of doctrine, verse 2, verse 6, verses 9 to 10. Andreas J. Kostenberger, in his, evangel in his Evangelical Biblical Theology Commentary, he helps self sets the tone for studying this particular portion of Scripture when he comments, the standards set for the church leaders are reasonable and they're attainable. In, in fact, many of these same qualities are encouraged of all believers, not everyone is eligible, but there should be many potential candidates in any given congregation. There should be godly people, people who love God's word, people who are exceptionally gifted. False elders and failing deacons are then to be removed from their duties and replaced with people who are eligible, who can lead and lead us into the future. Verse 2 in this verse, we see that an overseer must be able to teach. This is one of the criteria. And this coincides with two of the five spiritual offices that are listed in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. In that scripture, it says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Or some, some translations would say pastor-teachers together as one. We call this the fivefold ministry. Since teaching and not preaching is emphasized here, the point is less about an inspirational message like I'm trying to give to you today, but it's more about an instructional message. Does that mean that an overseer requires a theological education? Well, I think it's important to clarify the term overseer really refers to two things, not deacons, but pastors and elders separately. While I would say that a theological education is mandatory for pastors so that they can show themselves approved to their congregations, I would say that a theological education is not mandatory for an elder. Because an elder must just be diligent and devoted as a student of God's word. That's all that's required of them. He or she must be well-versed 
in scripture, able to open the scriptures, give basic understanding, clarify what is true, and expose what is false. In other words, elders, elderesses, deacons and deaconesses alike must be theologically vital people. The Apostle Paul, he shifted his focus to the maturity of the overseer in verse six, where he says, he must not be a recent convert or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. See, this warning is to avoid the appointment of a recent believer. And here's why. Because there is some maturing that needs to come to pass in their life. Note that this does not necessarily automatically mean a young person. Young person, young people are not disqualified because just being young doesn't mean mature. Timothy was a young man. A person who recently came to faith still needs to be instructed no matter how passionate for God's word he or she may be or how much leadership potential we can see within him or her. Practically speaking, a new Christian is more likely to interpret the call to serve as an elder improperly and become prideful and then abuse their spiritual authority, which ultimately hurts the congregation. Just like knowledge puffs up, premature leadership puffs up. The Apostle Paul, he compared this conceitedness to the same tragic flaw that led to the casting out of Lucifer from heaven, from his former role as an angel down to the earth below. How quickly a new convert can fall and become conceited if they are given spiritual leadership too quickly. Hence, there needs to be tests. How many years are required to deem someone spiritually mature in the faith and make them eligible for the role of overseer? Is it five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, 25 years? Friends, it's not about years. It's about discerning the spiritual maturity of a person. Some people are just not ready yet. But guess what? They will be ready in due time. It will come to pass in their life. The season might not be right this moment, but the season will come to pass future. Rushing the process, of course, can be detrimental to the church. It can require correction in the position or dismissal from a position, and that hurts the person. It's not easy to go through that experience. So turning to address the test of doctrine concerning deacons and deaconesses, verse 9 to 10 informs us they must keep hold of the deep truths of the faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested. And then if there is nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. You see, the role of a deacon or deaconess has often been partially misunderstood. We have emphasized a practical giftedness and a business acumen or mindset for the organization's good. And we have de-emphasized the spiritual giftedness and the doctrinal awareness that is required for the role. This is bad, but this is not what WPA looks like. As I said of Stephen, of Philip, of Phoebe, there needs to be an understanding and preservation of deep truths referring to essential doctrine and the theology of the church. We have to keep first things first. They should be unwavering in their faith. They should have a clear conscience about what they confess, but also what they profess. After all, what are they doing? They're setting an example for all believers in love and speech and purity and conduct. 
The Apostle Paul, he stressed the importance of this testing. What is this test? Is it a written test? Is it an oral test? It is, is it a practical test? No. The test is to be conducted by spiritual leaders, carefully inspecting the life of the candidates and seeing if there's anything that can be held against him or her when it comes to their doctrine and their theology. It is only after such careful review that the candidate would be invited then to become a deacon or a deaconess, ultimately nominated by the church family here, the membership. So what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16 is not only useful for Timothy's life, but it's also useful for those who serve or desire to serve as an overseer or a deacon. Listen to the scripture. It's about not just them, but it's also about you. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them. What does persevere mean? Make progress, endure in it, and show yourself faithful to the very end. Second point this morning is a test of character. We find this in verses 2 to 3, verse 8, and verse 11. Character and integrity are crucial to church leadership. A congregation can quickly detect what the heart of a leader is. They can identify this by, by just watching how they engage with people. They can identify this by what they talk about and how they talk about people. In verse 2 and 3, the Apostle Paul, he outlined the characteristics of an overseer. Now, the overseer is to be above reproach, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. What does Paul mean when he says above reproach? See, that word reproach is primarily an Old Testament concept and it is only used once in the New Testament, only in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. The translation is uh, basically blamelessness. A quick survey of Old Testament scriptures revealed that reproach is synonymous with a curse, an object of horror, scorn, a byword, an object of ridicule, an object of shame, and an object of attack. We want to be above reproach. Our character should be far above these things. And they should never elicit these kind of reactions. The Apostle Paul, he focused on issues of self-control. And I've removed faithful to his wife, which I'll address later. And I have already addressed able to teach. So I'm going to move forward with four words cast in the negative. Okay? Drunkenness, violence, quarrelsomeness, and the love of money are all issues that result from a lack of self-control. Drunkenness is an issue of substance abuse. Violence is an issue of physical, verbal, and sexual abuse. Quarrelsomeness is an issue of control over the tongue. Greed is an issue of addiction to money. You don't want people to be leaders who have these issues going on in their life. Now let's, look, let's continue with four words that are cast in the positive. Temperate, respectable, hospitable, and gentle are all evidence of the possession of self-control. Instead of drunkenness, the candidate must be temperate, which means to have a sober mind and to live their life in moderation. Instead of violence, the candidate must be gentle. Instead of quarrelsome, the candidate must maintain the respect of people by their good behavior. 
Instead of greedy, the candidate must be hospitable, which means being generous with their resources. See, an overseer, both pastor and elder, who lacks self-control is not fit to serve the church. They should be disqualified from serving in that capacity. In verse 8, the Apostle Paul, he provided the character criteria for deacons and deaconesses now. And it's not very different from what was given to the overseers. It's not the exact same language, but it's very similar. The scripture says in the same way. Do you catch that? In the same way. Deacons are to be worthy of respect, sincere, not indulging in much wine, and not pursuing dishonest gain. What is clear is that drinking was an issue among the early church, not just today. It's going to get quiet in here. I can sense it. It happened in the first service. Nobody wants to talk about drinking. Well, drinking is not biblically outlawed. I'm saying that from a pulpit. It's not outlawed. It's not immoral to drink, okay? It is wise to avoid temptation if you're a leader in the church. That's wise. You set a good example for all the believers in conduct. In addition... Dishonest gain suggests that people were pursuing these spiritual roles for all the wrong reasons. See, entitled church leaders may mishandle money or misuse their power. They may use their title for personal benefit. We must never allow this to happen at WPA. It's dangerous. It's a threat to the body of Christ. It's unhealthy in every sense. But I'm so grateful that we have such humble servant leaders here at WPA who do not lord their position over the congregation. In fact, you know what they do? They love the congregation. They pray for the congregation. They consider the congregation before they make decisions for the congregation. They think about you. They put you first in everything. In verse 11, the apostle Paul is explicit about women likely because he has separated men from women very distinctly in his mind. The scripture says in the same way, once again, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Well, I, I asked the question to myself, is he talking about deaconesses or the spouses of male deacons? If deaconesses, are they held to a different character criteria simply because of their gender? Is there need for a distinction of criteria? But the Apostle Paul, he, he could have left it general, but he chose to be specific about deaconesses. What is the real difference, though? Let's, let's think about the words that he's using. What's the real difference? Nothing. Nothing, really. It's all the same. He's talking about the same sorts of things. Same characteristics. We see a repetition of respectable and temperate. The avoidance of malicious talk, which might be also distinguished as something similar or unique from quarrelsomeness that was used earlier. Or the general absence of self-control. He also added trustworthy in everything. I think that's ironic because this is considered to be one of the trustworthy sayings. Well, self-control is the major theme of the test of character. If self-control is the fruit of the spirit and growth in it is part of our sanctification, which is God's work in us, growing more and more to be like Christ Jesus, then we must attribute this character formation to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. 
We must be filled. Our leaders must be filled. Our pastors, our deacons, our elders, our deaconesses, our elderesses, whatever you want to call them. Those church leaders need to be full of the Holy Spirit. Is the candidate bearing a spiritual fruit? Not just gifts, fruit. Can we see the evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit in that person's life? We need to. In other words, elders and elderesses, deacons and deaconesses must be spiritually vital people. Hope you're catching it. I'm throwing the vision right into the sermon. Theologically, spiritually, and missionally vital people. Third point this morning is a test of reputation, and we find this in verse 2, verses 4 to 5, verse 7, and verse 12. In verse 2, the apostle Paul listed faithful to his wife when explaining the criteria for a test of reputation. Not only was a man to be faithful to his wife, but he was also to have only one wife. And all the men said, that wasn't good. Listen, your wives are going to nudge you pretty hard if you didn't say amen to that. Amen. Not two wives, not three wives, not four wives. That's just trouble. One wife. One husband, one wife. And the reason why this is important, why it's one wife, is because the culture around them, the ancient Near Eastern culture, the Greco-Roman culture, they celebrated polygamy. They celebrated all sorts of things like this that are corrupt, immoral. Therefore, a divorced elder would likely not be approved unless the divorce was established on biblical grounds of adultery. Of course, there are instances where an elder or a deacon, a deaconess or an elders doesn't even have to be married. In the case, most of them were. In verses four to five, the apostle Paul shifted from marriage. He moves from one sector of their lives, one area to another area, which is the family. And as he does this, verses four to five, speaking of elders, the apostle Paul stated, he must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. And if anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? Good question. A healthy and spiritual family is one where a husband loves his wife and a wife loves her husband and the children obey their parents, amen? It's not perfect. Doesn't mean you don't argue. Doesn't mean your kids disobey. They're going to. That's part of marriage and that's part of family. But an overseer's ability to do so demonstrates strong managerial skills. The family is not forced or threatened to submit out of fear, but they do so out of respect for the leadership in the home. And we are given a comparison moving from the least to the greatest. You see, taking care of one's family is a prerequisite for one who is going to take care of God's family. In verse 7, the Apostle Paul, he moves from inside the family, and next he moves to outside in the community. What is our testimony? What is the reputation of this person among the unbelievers living around them? Scripture says in verse 7, he must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Did you catch that? Devil's trap. This is the second time we see mention of the devil in this text. What benefit is it to have a positive reputation in the church only to have a negative reputation out in the community? 
What benefit is that? The trappings of the devil that lead to disgrace seem to happen outside in the secular community more often than even inside in the safety of our church community. And if church leaders need to cultivate a public reputation with outsiders, that means they cannot just remain in the four walls of this church. They can't just live their lives rubbing their shoulders just with Christians. They need to befriend unbelievers. They need to be made known in the community. There should be no duplicity in their life. Who they are in the community must be who they are in the church and vice versa. In other words, elders and elderses and deacons and deaconesses must be missionally vital people. In verse 12, we find an identical statement and I deal with it just to bring closure to this this comment here. We find an identical statement in, to verse four, but with the omission of a comparison that we found in verse five that was with elders and or, or overseers. In this scripture, it says a deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and his household well. Unfortunately, the scenario of a deaconess being faithful to her husband and managing her children and household well was ignored. But the gender roles remained deeply entrenched even though men and women were of equal opportunity when it comes to being a deacon or a deaconess. Nevertheless, when it comes to reputation, what is expected of elders and elderesses is equally expected of deacons and deaconesses. Amen? What is expected of male leaders is expected of female leaders just the same, amen? That's what matters. As I conclude this morning, as the worship team prepares to return, three weeks from today, we will be hosting our annual general meeting. This meeting, if you're new to church, this meeting happens once a year. It is where we go over uh, the vision of the church, the finances of the church, and where we're heading for the future. And there is great time and a greater opportunity for us to prayerfully participate in this process at WPA if you're a member. There are several deacon positions, deaconess positions open, two of them being three-year terms, one of them being a one-year term. And the slate of candidates will soon be presented to you, the membership, so that you can join in on the discernment process. There is also one who I've asked to join the elders council to serve alongside of me. And I will need for that person to be ratified by the congregation. The congregation nominates deacons. I select elders. But we need to heed this trustworthy saying and select trustworthy leaders, godly men and godly women to serve as our spiritual leaders. How many know that we need leaders? Not just pastors. You need deacons and you need elders. You need deaconesses, you need elderesses. I don't even know if that's a word, elderesses. But I'm gonna keep it. You get the idea. Deaconess is the word, elderess is the word. You see, as a nomination committee, we will conduct a three test for you. We will do the vetting for you, the test of doctrine, the test of character, and the test of reputation. And we'd look then to the membership to be led by the Holy Spirit to prayerfully and discerningly cast their vote at the upcoming meeting. And the future of WPA rests in this process. This is serious stuff. 
Because an unfit elder, an unfit deacon can derail the church from its vision. Let me tell you, I've seen it happen in many churches in the past. There's internal strife. There's pastors and deacons arguing about stuff that doesn't matter or things that do matter. So this is the sacred trust that we must fulfill as members of this local assembly. So consider this my personal personal invitation to all the formal members of WPA to prepare to join us for the annual general meeting on November 7th after the second service or kind of in between the second service. You're gonna get more information about that. You'll be well informed. But if you're not a member, let me just take a moment to talk to you here this morning. Many of you have been attending WPA for so many years. You consider this your church home. I know your name. You're involved in ministry. It's fantastic. We love you. But there are some of you have still not yet taken that step to be a member. And I don't know what it is. Maybe you're afraid of the commitment. Maybe you're afraid of what people will ask of you. I don't know. But to you, I am asking you today to carefully consider, prayerfully consider becoming a member at WPA. You need to consider this carefully. You're part of the family. You also need to be a part of the decision-making that happens here. Don't just sit on the fringe, come in deep, come in close. And then there's another set of group of people who are new to WPA. You've been with us maybe over the last 18 months since the pandemic began. And you've been tracking with us, maybe even online. I'm gonna ask you, friends, don't just remain anonymous Become a part of the family. Come in tight and close. Go through the membership process that Pastor Kim will explain to you a little later. And we would love to have you become a part of this family in a deeper commitment, in deeper intimacy. Because we need you. Because we need you to play your role. It's a sacred trust. And if you want to do that, if you want to take that next step today, you can just go out into the foyer today at the info desk Pastor Kim and some others will be there. Pick up a membership card, fill that out, send it back to us, and we will begin the process together towards your membership at WPA. So church, we love you. Members, we love you. Those who are not yet members, we love you. And let's just be the healthiest church we can be. Let's have the healthiest leadership structure we can have. And let's do this all to the glory of God, amen? Let's pray.